Section 14 of Stories Without Tears. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Stark. Stories Without Tears by Barry Payne. Section 14. A Devil, a Boy, and a Trade Designer. Mr. Paxton Bland's clerks were in the habit of saying that he was a devil. They respected him, but thought that he had too much energy. Businessmen who had dealings with him got to realize the extreme folly of monkeying with Paxton Bland, and sometimes alluded to the fact with bitterness. When he thought a man was trying to get ahead of him, Paxton Bland never protested or showed indignation. He knew that this world is far from perfect. He never threatened. He was one of those dogs that do not bark, but the man who attempted sharp practice with Paxton Bland generally came to the conclusion that he bit considerably. His wife thought him the sweetest tempered man in the world. She found him so gentle and easy to manage that she wondered at first that in the rough competition of business he did not get thrown down and stepped on. Yet as far as she could judge by results, and her husband did not show her processes, he was not subjected to this humiliating catastrophe. The results took the form of money, heaps of money, every year more money, money enough to buy Sandilows as soon as he found she wanted it. She conjectured that possibly his way with men was different from his way with women. That, in fact, was the case. Sandilows consisted of a house, outbuildings, and twelve acres of land, eight miles from a railway station in Oxfordshire. The house was old, picturesque, and had a semi-ecclesiastical appearance. It photographed very nicely, and the photographs were admirably reproduced in the catalogue of the London house agents. It was in their catalogue that Mrs. Bland first saw and fell in love with the place. Then she went down and inspected it personally, and fell in love with it still more. Then she talked to Paxton about it, and Paxton talked to an architect, and following his creed that you should give a woman what she wants when you can, he bought Sandilow's. Mrs. Paxton Bland was not the only person who had been struck by the photographs in the catalogue. A white-haired old gentleman in Hornsey was much interested in them. He lived in a small detached house, and a brass plate on the door said that he was Mr. Albert Watt, trade designer, but did not tell you what a trade designer was. It apparently involved a profound study of house property. Mr. Watt read many catalogues, giving the preference to those that had illustrations and plans. Against certain items, he put a little mark. Occasionally, he traveled about the country and asked questions relating to house property, but he never made an attempt to purchase any. He seemed quite content with the little house in Hornsey. There was an old housekeeper who did not look very pleasant, attended to his wants. His few visitors did not look very pleasant either. They seemed to be of a lower class than Mr. Watt. He was neatly and quietly dressed as befits an old gentleman, paid his bills with the utmost regularity, and was ready with a modest subscription to any good and local cause. The more he thought about Sandalos, the more he wanted to see it. It was sold, as he was aware, to Mr. Paxton Bland, but that did not matter. One morning he set out with a black bag and left the trade designing to take care of itself for one day. But I fear that he was inaccurate when on calling at Sandalos that afternoon, before Mr. Paxton Bland returned from the city, he gave a card which stated that his name was Champneys, and that he represented the great publishing house of Orwell and Smith. That night, Mrs. Bland asked her husband at dinner if he wanted to be in Our English Homes, published by Messrs. Orwell and Smith. He answered that it had been the dream of his life, but that so far he had hidden it from her. 
He did not speak with any excessive seriousness. "'Well,' she said, smiling, and she had a very pretty smile, "'it's going to be. The man, or traveller, or whatever he's called, came here today to get permission to send an artist down to make sketches of the place. Richards showed him around so that he could choose the best points for the pictures.' "'Did he collect a subscription for a copy of the book when it is finished?' "'No, but I sent a message to him through Richards. "'He said that particulars would be sent to us.' "'And did he borrow money or merely take an umbrella out of the hall?' "'Nothing of the kind. "'Oh, you're quite wrong there. "'You are indeed, Paxton. "'I saw him through the window, "'and he looked a most respectable old gentleman "'with a most respectable black bag. "'I've a mean mind, but I'm glad it's all right.' In reality, he was far from thinking it all right. He would have been much better satisfied if the old gentleman had collected a subscription or purloined an overcoat. That would have been a sufficient explanation for his exceedingly improbable story. Messrs. Orwell and Smith were not in the habit of publishing that class of book at all. If they had been publishing it, they would have written for permission. There was no need to send a man down. Their man, if he had been sent, would have had a prospectus of the book that he could have shown. Also, their traveller would not select the subjects for the artist. Finally, Mr. Bland did not believe that Sandilos was of sufficient importance to be included in any such collection. One does not tell an elaborate story having no foundation in fact without some purpose. If the old gentleman had merely borrowed half a crown, there would have been the purpose. As it was, Mr. Bland feared the purpose was more serious, perhaps. On the following night, Mr. Watt had a visitor at his little house in Hornsey. The visitor was not a young man of attractive appearance. He looked both flashy and furtive. His hair was very short and had been still shorter. His clothes were somewhat aggressive. He smoked a cigarette in a meerschaum holder and wore an elaborate buttonhole. His painfully dirty shirt was decorated by a stud with a colored stone in it. When he reached Mr. Watt's house, he rapped very gently. His assurance returned when the old housekeeper opened the door to him. She seemed to know him and asked him what he was doing out so late at night without his mother. To this the young man replied that he thought he was old enough to blow his nose for himself, that she grew younger every day, and that if he hadn't come on business he would have taken her to the Savoy Hotel and stood her a pennyworth of whelks. With such graceful and refined badinage did the visitors to Mr. Watt replace the tiresome formality of more ordinary establishments. The housekeeper jerked her thumb towards the door and said, "'He's in there.' Then she retired, and the visitor, after tapping at the door, Mr. Watt was particular about this, entered. Mr. Watt had requested this visitor to call, and yet he did not look pleased or obliged when he saw him. "'Now, what am I to say to you?' Mr. Watt asked reflectively. "'Well, grandfather,' said the young man, "'you ought to know. You sent for me. Or was open that you come on something that—' He hunted his mind for a euphemism. I'd taken your fancy. I make mistakes, said Mr. Watt sadly. I put lovely business in the way of people, and then I'm not remembered as I should be. Do you suppose Cockeye's straight with me? Do you suppose he brings me all the stuff? Tells me he do. That I can believe, said the old gentleman severely. Cockeye's not likely to tell you anything he doesn't want passed on to me. He says he does. Well, I tell you, he doesn't. Got anything to say to that? It seems queer. It'll seem queer to Cockeye before I've finished with him. Cockeye. Why made Cockeye? Actually made him. 
He was sneaking milk cans when I took him up. That's all right. Now we'll see how he gets on without me. I've a little thing now that he might have had. I've been working it up for some time. It's quite a little thing, but it's no sort of trouble or risk. I could do it myself, but it didn't suit me better to do the putting up. It's hardly more than going and fetching. I could almost get a retriever to do it. But if Cockeye had gone and had fetched, and handed all over to me for and square, it would have been two hundred and fifty golden sovereigns in his pocket that very night. Think of that! Two hundred and fifty golden sovereigns! Now he can whistle for them. Looks as if it might fit me, grandfather, said the youth. Ah, uh, the old man said reflectively. You're so particular about anything you're asked to take up, James. Don't put it that way, said James. I were bit in three places. I was short in the leg. I damn near broke my neck. And poor Snitcher, what were with me, is doing of his trade for it now. All I told you was that it was a bit rough and tumble, and that were in the eat of the moment, as you might say. I wasn't grumbling, exactly. You're young to be put on a thing like this all alone. It's not like having Snitcher by you to show you the ropes. I never put you on alone before. Everything must have a beginning, said James modestly. You said it was a light job, and of course, I shouldn't expect you what cock I would. That's a comfort, said Mr. Watt, a trifle sarcastically. You wouldn't get it if you did, but I'm glad, James, to hear that you don't expect it. You think I'd go throwing it about under the nose of the slits, Grandfather? But you're wrong. I ain't that sort. I'm careful. I know what you boys are, when you get a little money in your pocket. A new suit, yellow boots, off with your girl to some swell place where you both look like a couple of fools, doing everything you know to make people believe you've got money. And then surprised if Scotland Yard wants to know how you got it. That's you, isn't it? Not me. Sums like that, but not me. I'm careful. I'll snitch it if I ain't. I will when he comes out. If you want this job, you can have it. Bring me the stuff. It will all go in one pocket. And you shall have a hundred and twenty-five. But it'll be spread over six months. And longer if I find you playing the fool. If you want to spend money, go away to do it. See? Now then. Take it or leave it. Oh, bet your life I'm on. Very well, then. Listen. And the old gentleman began to give a remarkably accurate description of Sandalos and the habits of the residents there. James listened with the greatest attention. He noted every point and made Mr. Watt repeat anything he failed to grasp the first time. But Mr. Watt was very lucid and had several little diagrams ready to make things clearer. Sounds good, said James. Softing, too. But why didn't you pizen the dog, Grandfather? For the same reason, I have not put an advertisement in the morning papers to say that you are coming. Besides, you never go near the dog. If you stick to your directions... True, said James humbly. I weren't trying to teach you anything, Grandfather, but I were bit in three places last time, and I never cared about dogs. And remember, it's a clockwork house. If you're not dead on time, you'll be wrong. Got a watch? James produced a silver watch from his pocket. Very nice watch, and keeps good time. Gent has had it before me was regularly sorry to part with it. The Edward Ipsum, and a friend of mine told me the gent was inquiring for the watch, under the grandstand in a most agitated way. Wished he hadn't given it to me after all, I suppose. Mr. Watt was lighting the best cigar that was smoked in Hornsey that night. Business over, he unbent a little 
he produced whiskey and glasses from the sideboard james rolled a cigarette with quick dirty hands and as he sipped his liquor made an attempt to get a little more information out of mr watt nodding his head in what he presumed to be the direction of the kitchen he asked is she right in it or ain't she she knows said mr watt all that there is any occasion for her to know don't talk business to her nor to anyone else as long as it's my business as if i would why grandfather i believe you take me for a baby i wouldn't do it nor for all the money you've got and that's more than i shall ever get a sight of in this world he spoke as if with a pious hope that this little inequality would be redressed in the hereafter if he had any idea of persuading the old gentleman to make either a statement or disclaimer as to what his possessions really were he was disappointed mr watt began to talk about the grand national and produced cogent arguments against gambling just before he left james went fishing once more i've known your grandfather he said with an air of reflective reminiscence more nor a year now it's full thirteen months since nature brought me along and i don't know no more about you now nor what i did then i know your word may be took i knows you put up jobs and passes along the stuff but you don't speak like the rest of us and i've known many a flash here that ain't got narf as much of the toff about you as you have yourself sometimes of a night when i'm lying awake i wonders what you were afore you take up this game i was a master of arts and a priest in holy orders james left in a roar of laughter close as wax that's what you is he cried clerk in holy orders that's a good un grandfather good night to you i'd be rarin day after tomorrow early but as it happened through the circumstances which brought it about have nothing to do with the story mr watt whose real name was something else had been precisely what he had told james and had thence passed through more than one stage before he became a fence and a putter-upper of burglaries it has already been mentioned that mr paxton bland's clerks thought him a man of excessive energy he certainly had enough energy to make an inquiry from richards as to the representative of messrs orwell and smith richards was a good-natured and slightly pompous simpleton he said that in his opinion the man from orwell's was about as ignorant a man as you could find mr bland was interested and asked in what way the ignorance was displayed it appeared that this wretched champneys had an idea that he knew how the land gentry lived his ideas on this subject had been grotesque and richards had been much amused why sir he thought it was unusual to dine at six and for the lady of the house to wear all her diamonds even when the family was dining alone richards gave other examples of the abysmal ignorance displayed by chapneys as to the life of the upper classes it turned out that the good-natured richards had provided him with enlightenment all this bland heard with a pleased smile he had so much energy still left that he rose at five next morning and went to a little workshop where he was wont to amuse himself and did several things the result of what he did was that if anyone moved the short ladder on the brackets outside the wall of the kitchen yard the hand of a dial in mr bland's dressing-room informed him of the fact he took other precautions as well for although he had guessed what was to happen he did not know the precise way in which it would happen but he was inclined to think that the attempt to get mrs bland's diamonds would be made during the dinner hour and that the thief would find the latter useful on the following night james carried out with the greatest precision the directions that he had received from mr watt he kept clear of the stables where the dog was and he avoided with equal care the lodge at the entrance to the drive for the last three miles he had come across country a lonely country and well wooded just the kind of country that james liked 
there was no moon but the stars were rather brighter than james thought necessary but like a philosopher he tolerated what he was unable to alter he had committed the plans provided by mr watt to memory and had no difficulty about finding his way his procedure was to be according to ordinary form that is to say he was to secure the three doors of the house so that they could not be opened from inside or at any rate not without difficulty and delay he was to wire the pass so that our pursuer would trip and fall at eight precisely he was to enter the window of mrs bland's room by the help of a ladder that he would find on brackets fixed to the wall of the kitchen yard he was then to lock the door of the room open the jewel box with a wire slip the diamonds in his pocket without their cases descend by the ladder again and take his departure by a quarter to eight he had fixed his wires and only had to put the finishing touch to the fastening of the doors he did not intend actually to fasten them until he was quite ready to begin then he fetched the ladder and brought it round to the side of the house where it would be required mr paxton bland saw the hand on the dial move as he was dressing for dinner within a minute he had slipped on an ulster that he had ready dashed downstairs and let himself out the front door he took two skips into the shrubbery near and there hid himself and waited in another minute he could just distinguish the undersized james as he came softly up to the front door and put in that finishing touch then james went round to the other side of the house to the lawn under mrs bland's windows paxton bland listened he could hear the piano in the drawing-room his wife was playing as she waited for him to come down to dinner eight o'clock struck from the stables and immediately the music ceased then he was just able to hear a faint sound on the gravel on the other side of the house the ladder was just being put into position he drew a cap from his ulster pocket and put it on changed the revolver from the left pocket to the right and slipped the life preserver up his sleeve then mr paxton bland thought he would like to get around to the other side of the house also he went circuitously availing himself of a belt of shrubs from his second position he could hear the window being pushed up a little and recognized the cleverness that opened it so nearly without a sound then he saw a light moving about inside the room what struck him most was the stupendous impudence of the thing impudence that ninety-nine times out of a hundred might be perfectly successful there was now a clear course before an ordinary commonplace law-abiding citizen unquestionably mr paxton bland should have removed the ladder whistled the dog sent a gardener for the police and caught the burglar in a trap but i doubt if mr paxton bland was all these estimable things it will be remembered that his clerk said he was a devil i must myself admit he had his own way of doing things for the present he stood still and waited in less than five minutes james descended the ladder again what happened next may be given from james's point of view everything had gone without a hitch so far james said to himself that if there was another man in england who could put up a job like grandfather he should like to meet that man james had two diamond rings a diamond necklace a pearl necklace a diamond pendant and a diamond tiara in his pocket and though he was only going to get a hundred and twenty-five pounds for the lot he felt pleased he continued to feel pleased until he mounted the boundary fence and then he no longer felt pleased on the contrary he felt a violent blow on the side of the head and as he was on the top of the fence at the time he fell heavily and promiscuously before he could rise he felt something else unpleasant and this was a circular rim of cold steel pressed against his temple lie just as you are said a deep voice move a finger or speak a word and you are dead james had a revolver himself in his pocket but considered that the steel rim was where it was he thought that it was not worth while to move and he had no desire for conversation he felt a hand on the pocket where he had put his swag 
likewise in the pocket where he kept his revolver. Stand up, said the same deep voice. James saw no reason why he should not stand up. He stood and saw that his assailant was a man too big to fight, even if he had not been armed, a tall man in an ulster and cap. Six articles in all, said the man. Is that all you've got? Yes, said James. That was all I wanted. I have your revolver, and now I want your watch. It's a old silver watch. It ain't worth nothing. You don't. Here James was knocked down again, and once more told to stand up. He began to whimper and handed over the watch. Any money? James produced thirteen and three pence. That all? Yes. Goodness knows how I'm going to turkey get home. You'll walk, I suppose. Take that stud out of your shirt and give it here. The stone ain't real, said James, but he handed it over. Anything else? Knife and a bit of wire, said James, producing them. Further inquiry brought forth a little tobacco and a paper, a medicine bottle with gin in it, some matches, and a candle end and a piece of string. After that, James maintained that bar his clothes, he was skinned. Very well, said the man in the ulster. Now I'll go over you myself, and if you've spoken the truth, I'll give you back three pence to help you on your way home. If you haven't, you're going to die. The search, as might have been guessed from the readiness with which James submitted to it, yielded no more treasures. The man handed him three pennies, told him to be off, and watched him out of sight. James did not call on Mr. Watt next morning early. He arrived late in the evening, limping and exhausted. The unattractive housekeeper who admitted him said that he looked as if he had been left over from a bean feast, but James had no heart for bandinage. To Mr. Watt, he told the whole of his story. And it does seem a bit odd, he said in conclusion. When you done your best and took pines and got it all in your pocket, to have it all stole from you? Stole! That's what it was. There's no other name for it. The dirty dog. I hope you'll swing one of these days. It's no use talking like that, said Mr. Watt. You've not got the stuff, and therefore you won't have the money. You marked your face lately, I see. There's nothing didn't do. Watch gone, cash gone, everything gone. If I'd been anywhere near your size, I'd have made a fight of it, and chanced his iron. You want a drink, don't you? Thank you, and that's a poor word for it. But no amount of whiskey, and he took a good deal, could reconcile James to the hardness of his lot. He renewed his complaints. Look here, James, said the old gentleman. You seem to forget that I'm losing a week's work, and a lot of diamonds, just when I can place all I can get, and all through your carelessness. You don't seem to be able to take care of yourself. Now I suppose you'll come bleating to me wanting to be put onto something else. It won't my fault, Grandfather. How was I to know that even swine was waiting there and watching of me? Do you know how I feel about this? Go on. I feel that if anyone would give me a thickener to make a start with, I'd swear never to take another penny that didn't belong to me. I've had a thickener. Don't say things you don't mean, James. Bible oath, I mean it. And I stick it to it, too. I knows more than one way to pick up a living honest. Mr. Watt walked up and down the room twice pausing to take a sip from his glass each time. Then he sat down, pulled a leather bag from his pocket, extracted a sovereign, and tossed it across to James. A sovereign, I think you said. Take it and go, and keep your word. Don't come here again. Good night. I say, Grandfather, James began. But Mr. Watt broke in again. 
Damn you, go before I change my mind. It's your chance. Take it and stick to it. Go! And James, feeling sure now that this life is full of surprises, went. And, which is much more extraordinary, he did keep his word. He is at present doing very well in the grocery line, has his own shop, and if you suggested to him that there was a time when he preferred stealing, I think he would be much hurt. And Mr. Paxton Bland wears a silver watch and a complacent expression. End of section 14. Recording by Cindy Stark.